2: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: I'm prepared to speak with Mr. Putin if, in fact, there is an interest in him deciding he's looking for a way to end the war. He hasn't done that yet. If that's the case... In consultation with my French and my NATO friends, I'll be happy to sit down with Putin to see what he wants has in mind. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to talk again about the war in Ukraine. Is there an end in sight?
2: Bakhmut has been pulverized by Russian fire for six long months. The war here has descended into a muddy, wretched mess. Ah! Soldiers shoot at each other from trenches and foxholes. And just outside the city, Russians try to dodge grenades dropped on top of them by Ukrainian drones.
1: So a lot's happened over the past few months. At the end of the summer, Ukrainian forces captured back the northern region of Kharkiv. They've also made gains in the east, recently in the south, taking back the strategically located city of Kherson. As we just heard, fighting continues along the front
0: lines.
1: Of course there's been a price to pay, primarily the losses connected to the special military operation. I'm always thinking about that. There are economic costs too, but there are enormous gains. Without any doubt, what's happening now will ultimately benefit Russia and its future. That was Russian President Vladimir Putin speaking at the Valdai Club in late October. With Russian forces struggling on the battlefield, the Kremlin's mobilized some 300,000 new troops. It claims to have annexed four regions in Ukraine. The Russian forces only control part of each of them. Putin has ramped up nuclear threats, although at that same Valdai Club speech we just heard, he seemed to walk some of them back. Russia's also been pummeling Ukrainian energy infrastructure. The Kremlin seems to be banking on Western support for Ukraine eroding over the winter as high energy prices bite in Europe. So far, though, there's little sign of that happening. This week, US President Joe Biden met with his French counterpart, Emmanuel Macron. In the intro, we heard Biden's remarks in their joint press conference about being ready to talk to Putin. The two leaders also reiterated their united commitment to Ukraine. This is NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg speaking from Romanian capital, Bucharest, where NATO foreign ministers gathered this week.
0: President Putin is trying to weaponize winter, to force Ukrainians to freeze
2: or flee. He is trying to break the will of the brave
0: Ukrainian people and to divide all of us who support them. But our meeting here in Bucharest is sending a strong message of NATO unity and of sustained support for Ukraine.
1: So with Ukrainian forces on the front foot, what should we expect over the coming months? Is there any hope that Ukraine, Russia, NATO leaders can find a way to end the war? To talk about all this, I'm delighted to welcome back on Olya Olyka, who listeners will know is Crisis Group's Europe Central Asia director. Olya, welcome back.
0: Glad to be back as always.
1: So why don't we start where we usually do, which is with a quick update of what's happening along the front lines, both in the south, as we heard Ukraine some weeks ago captured the city of Kherson, but also in the east, in the Donbass.
0: Right. So most of the fighting right now seems to be concentrated in Donbass, not including, of course, the continued Russian rocket um, bombardments that we've been seeing, the attacks on energy infrastructure across Ukraine. But the force-on-force fighting that we're seeing is in the east. None of it seems to be shifting lines of control very much. So we know there's artillery strikes on on positions, there is continuing trench warfare, but we're not seeing a lot of territory shifting hands.
1: And do you think what, over the coming winter now, I realize it's difficult to predict. Do you think that the front lines are likely to remain fairly static or could we see more changes in the coming months?
0: Do you know if I'm forced to make a guess I'm going to guess more changes. Mud is hard to fight in. Cold creates other constraints and difficulties particularly if forces don't have enough winter weather gear but none of this makes it impossible to fight. And I think both the Russians and the Ukrainians will be looking for opportunities for breakthroughs where they can get them. So I don't know that we're likely to settle into a stalemate that's going to last quite yet, in part because neither Russia nor Ukraine is going to see that as advantageous.
1: And sort of broadly speaking, as you say, the mud, soggy weather that's difficult to fight in. But once the ground freezes over, obviously a lot of snow, the cold brings other challenges. But once the ground freezes over, in principle, sort of who, whose strengths does that play to?
0: This is really hard to judge, right? It depends on what is actually going on in the fighting. Do you have vehicles that are trying to move? Or do you just have people cowering in trenches, bombarding each other with artillery? how much snow is there compared to just frozen ground? What kind of gear are the Ukrainians getting from their Western supporters? What kind of gear is Russia able to produce and get to the lines? And honestly, even if I knew all of that, I'd still be hesitant to make predictions.
1: And do you think there's any chance that Ukraine can cut off Something that's sort of floated that might be a next move, but can cut off this sort of land bridge that runs from areas that the Russians control in the east through along the southern coast to Crimea?
0: I mean, there's a continuing speculation that there's going to be some sort of movement in the south, but we haven't seen that actually happen as yet. Their Ukrainians apparently see the Russians moving the Russian National Guard. So these are kind of the civil order forces into southern Herson, presumably in order to maintain control, right, uh, of the population. So then that means what they're worried about is not um, Ukrainian military attacks, but diversionary efforts by Ukrainians who live there.
1: There's also this talk of Russian and Belarusian troop buildups in Belarus, from where part of the invasion in February was launched, the Ukrainians worried about another assault from there?
0: So I think the Ukrainians are worried less that the Russians are going to try to do what they tried to do in February and um, launch a massive attack down towards Kiev. They worry more about smaller scale attacks, perhaps towards nuclear power stations that are close to the border with Belarus in Ukraine. And that's possible. There are a decent number of Russian forces in Belarus, and of course, they're the forces of Belarus itself. Having said that, Belarus has been, let's say, hesitant to actually get its forces into the fight. Uh, that's putting it mildly. They really just haven't done it. So to a large extent, I think what the Russians are doing is they're staging out of Belarus, and they're probably also cannibalizing Belarusian equipment. On the Ukrainian side of the line, you have probably equivalent numbers of forces. Some of them are border forces, so they might not be as equipped, but they're hoping to get more equipped. And of course, the Ukrainians have done a massive mining campaign on their side of the border with Belarus. Uh, Somebody told Crisis Group uh, that at this point, they have mined everything even the forest trails. So it would be a tough slog to try to move south from Belarus right now.
1: So Russian tactics, as you say, some fighting, some attempts by Russia to advance in some areas, particularly Donbass, but mostly holding the line in other areas. But the other thing that the Russians are doing is bombarding much of Ukraine and taking out its energy, some of its military infrastructure, but mostly its energy infrastructure. So the Kremlin is hoping, what, to wear down Ukrainian morale, resistance, and also hit Ukraine's ability to fight?
0: Well, look, the military also needs energy, so, you know, it degrades that. It also uses up a lot of Ukrainian air defense capabilities, right, which may also be part of the point of all of this is... I mean, this is something we were hearing at the very beginning was that the Russians planned a blitz in part to flush and get rid of Ukrainian air defenses. I mean, one way you do that is by just making them use them up. Air defenses are not 100% effective, right? You know, if you're lucky, they're 50% effective. So you fire a lot of air defense rockets to knock down incoming rockets, and you're still not going to knock all of them down. So you know, can they over time degrade the Ukrainian air defense capability to such an extent that they actually have more freedom in the skies over Ukraine? Well, not if Western states keep supplying more air defenses. So, you know, we get into a different kind of competition there. But I think that's another military component of this blitz campaign.
1: And what about the impact on Ukrainian morale?
0: Uh, so the current public opinion surveys, the uh, The Ukrainian response to this is that uh, the Russians bombarding your energy infrastructure and hitting the occasional civilian facility is absolutely no reason to stop fighting. In fact, the opposite.
1: So since the Ukrainians have had the upper hand in the fighting, the Kremlin has done a few things in response. It's launched this mass mobilization, mobilized, according to President Putin, some 300,000 seemingly quite poorly trained and prepared Russian forces sent them to the front lines. It's announced this supposed annexation of these four regions in Ukraine. What does Russia have left to sort of change the balance of force? I mean, it doesn't seem that it has an awful lot that it can do to actually turn the tide.
0: Well, I think what it's hoping to do is convince the Western countries backing Ukraine to stop or to ease the backing. And it's hoping to convince the Ukrainians to sue for peace. And I think they are hoping that they can put enough manpower, and it is in the Russian case, uh, pretty much 100% men, into the fight and actually start regaining some territory, maybe put some pressure on Ukraine. Um, I don't think they've given up on that, particularly in the East. But I think they would like this war to end at the negotiating table, but with their victory. The other thing that we saw recently is they pulled out of the bilateral consultative talks with the United States over the New Star Treaty. And the Kremlin, um, the foreign ministry spokeswoman said that they weren't willing to have these talks until unless the United States stopped uh, arming Ukraine. So, you know, what they're trying to do is is push the West, is push the uh, country supporting Ukraine to stop supporting Ukraine.
1: So broadly speaking, try to keep front lines where they are, if possible, regain a bit of territory, but bank on the fact that you know, Western governments may rethink their support for Ukraine either over the winter as the high energy prices bite in Europe, or for whatever other reason,
0: I think so. I mean, I think at some point they might decide that they've degraded the Ukrainians sufficiently somewhere and try to launch a major assault. But that isn't something I'm seeing any preparation for now.
1: Could we touch again on the nuclear question? Because we've talked about this in previous episodes. From the beginning of the war, you've had Moscow sort of reminding everyone about its nuclear weapons, making these barely veiled threats that it would potentially use anything at its disposal referring to nuclear weapons against anyone helping ukraine but then what in october that seemed to be taken to a different level when top russian officials shared with what un security council a bunch of other defense ministries what seemed to be sort of entirely concocted intelligence that ukraine might use a dirty bomb which raised fears that russia itself would use nuclear weapons in retaliation for false flag action so things seemed to be sort of coming to a head but then at the end of october in a speech to the Valdai club president putin seemed to walk that back i mean he said there was no reason as yet for anyone to use nuclear weapons is that a fair reading that nuclear menacing seems to have calmed a little bit over the past few weeks
0: For the time being, yeah. I mean, we've heard less, but I think it's important to understand that the logic of the nuclear menacing was coercive, right? The idea was to remind everybody of how dangerous this is, and in doing that, to get them to back off. Since what it seemed to generate instead was counter threats and a reminder to Russia of, really, do you really want to play this game of escalation? Because, yes, of course, it scares us, but it scares you too, so the Russians have backed away from it for, for the time being. But you know the goals haven't changed, and I think there's still some risk of this conflict uh, becoming nuclear. I don't think the risk is particularly high at this moment. I'm not sure it correlates perfectly with the rhetoric and the narratives of nuclear use. Right again, because using nuclear weapons coercively, which is how they're usually used involves a lot of talking about them. But what you're doing is you're trying to avoid using them when you're having these conversations. The real risk of nuclear use, I think, rises substantially if Russia genuinely feels that it has no other options, if the Kremlin thinks there's a threat to the existence of Russia, its control of Russia. So, you know, this is where we get into real dangers of nuclear use in the sense of nuclear weapons blowing up. When it comes to nuclear use in the sense of people talking about them and making implicit or explicit threats, particularly the implicit ones, I think this has been dialed down, but I wouldn't count on that not coming back.
1: And the likelihood of nuclear weapons being used would obviously go up dramatically were NATO confronting directly Russia. I mean, that's one scenario. But isn't there another scenario where Ukraine makes more gains... The Kremlin feels that its grip on power in Russia could be jeopardized by that because of a sort of humiliating defeat, feels it has no other options and gambles again on some sort of nuclear strike in the hope that that deters, stops Ukraine, changes Ukraine's calculations, changes the West's calculations
0: and... just freaks everybody out, right? I mean, it doesn't really change the balance on the battlefield. The idea there would be no military purpose, right, uh, to this. If you're in a war between Russia and NATO, there's a military purpose potentially to nuclear use, whether it's to use the weapons before you lose the capacity to do so against the other states' uh, nuclear capability or the other alliance's nuclear capability, whether there are actually potentially hard targets involved. Kind of this notion of using a nuclear weapon symbolically in Ukraine, again, something we've discussed before. It's hard to kind of tell the story of how this works. Having said that, it's not completely impossible. It's just kind of, it's hard to understand how it makes sense. Does a government that is on the brink of failure then survive the risk of having used a nuclear weapon? It's an irrational act, right? People sometimes do irrational things. People do ill-conceived things. People take actions based on faulty information. But The kind of the catastrophic Ukrainian victory scenario, I suppose it's not zero probability, but it's not top of my list of things that keep me up at night.
1: And so far, as you say, the response in the West to the more explicit nuclear menacing that came throughout October, sort of before Putin's Valdai Club speech, the response was the opposite of giving any sign of backing down. In fact, you had countries that saw what was happening in Ukraine as even more existential for their own security, not just Ukrainian security. So it sort of deepened resolve in Western capitals. It also prompted, it seems, these communicational meetings between the U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and his Russian counterparts. And there seems to have been some sort of explicit warnings from the U.S. about the way that the U.S. itself would respond to the use of nuclear weapons by russia i mean that sort of diplomacy i guess that sort of thing makes sense that sort of communication
0: sure and i mean that would also be the case in this uh, catastrophic ukrainian success scenario too right that surely you're not going to save yourself by dragging the west into this conflict and that's all that you would get i mean yeah this is how you do it it is not always guaranteed to work um it is fraught It is dangerous, but this is how these conversations are had. I do think that the Russians pulling out of the New Star Treaty consultative talks is not a great sign for capacity to limit nuclear risks. And it also does weaken some of these continuing channels of communication. But I still, you know, I think the diplomacy we saw... in in the recent weeks and months to show that when it comes down to it, when they need to, they will talk. And there are ways to communicate these messages.
1: Oli, I want to come in a moment to Western policy. But before I do that, I mean, influential non-Western capitals have also seemed to be making sort of increasingly disapproving noises about the war, about the nuclear threats in particular. I mean, India, which is mostly sat on the sidelines of the Ukraine war, even to some degree China. So there was the G20 statement from mid-November, so a statement from the Club of Big Economies, which include all the BRICS. Uh, so China, India, Brazil, South Africa, also the Saudis, Turkey. Now the statement hedged a bit, saying there were different views within the group, but it was quite strong on Ukraine and strong on the nuclear saber rattling. And there was a very similar statement shortly afterwards from the APEC summit, the Asia-Pacific Economic Community, How much do you think all that matters and is sort of shaping calculations in the Kremlin?
0: Look, I can't tell you what is actually going on in Kremlin discussions. What I can say is that if you think that the Russian accusations of Ukrainian dirty bomb preparations were meant to lay groundwork for possible response, and to justify that response, to uh, limit the extent of global anger and should Russia respond even with a nuclear weapon Then, getting a hearing a very clear signal from other countries that, no, this isn't acceptable to us either. Um, we are not going to allow or excuse something that crosses the nuclear taboo um, for pretty much any reason you come up with, uh, certainly not any of the, the ones you've come up with to date. You know, so if, if that's the logic, then it's very useful to, uh, to have uh, the rest of the world, uh, make that clear. Um, if you have a different hypothesis for why the Russians were talking about Ukrainian, uh, dirty bomb preparations and so forth, then maybe you don't think this is that important. Um But, you know, I will say Russia does play to a global audience. If you listen to the way they talk about foreign policy now, if you talk to Russian foreign policy professionals, they try to make a case that there's a lot more support for them globally than the West would have you believe, which may be true. But if so, having a very clear statement that there is not support for nuclear saber rattling Uh, And there's certainly not support for nuclear use uh, that has some value.
1: So NATO foreign ministers met this week in Bucharest, as we heard up top, which in itself is a bit uh, symbolic. I mean, it was the the 2008 NATO summit in Bucharest in which NATO members, despite some disagreement among them, welcomed Ukraine's and Georgia's applications into NATO. So if not the original sin in Moscow's eyes, certainly a big step in the deterioration of relations between the West and Russia. So, was the choice of location deliberate? And what do you make of what came out of the meeting this week?
0: So, the 2008 Bucharest Declaration managed to be the worst of all possible worlds. Uh, there was a debate in NATO on whether they should welcome Georgia and Ukraine, offer them membership action plans, and start uh, set into motion a process that could lead to their eventual membership or not. Uh, what they chose to do instead was not start that process, but to say that eventually both of these countries will join NATO, um, which uh, was not enough to give them any kind of security and was enough to really, really annoy the Russians. So again, and possibly worsen their security by having done that. Uh, so, you know, uh, possibly not NATO's finest moment.
1: That was essentially to fight over differences between France and Germany on one hand and the US on the other.
0: Yeah, I mean, other countries also had views, but yes. So what the foreign minister said in their joint statement, and I'm going to quote this, is, we firmly adhere to the open door policy of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. We reaffirm the 2008 Bucharest Summit and all subsequent decisions regarding Georgia and Ukraine you know, you could read that as all subsequent decisions, including the continuing decision to not offer them membership action plans, right? So, you know, it's a new fudgy statement um, that on the one hand, they're not walking back Bucharest because they don't think they can walk back Bucharest. On the other hand, it's not any kind of a statement of commitment to NATO enlargement.
1: Though if Moscow was hoping for any signs of division among NATO powers about supporting Ukraine, There's not a lot for it to hold on to at the moment. If Moscow's strategy rests on declining support in Western capitals for the war effort, there's not a lot of sign of that now. I mean, despite the the very high energy prices in Europe, the US midterms, what you had the part of the Republican Party that is more skeptical about the support to Ukraine did pretty badly in the US midterms. So if that's Russia's strategy, it doesn't seem, it seems for the moment like a pretty thin straw.
0: Look, a NATO ministerial is not the place where I would expect uh, to see visible debate, but NATO also isn't a place where I would expect to see visible debate. I think there is, as you say, there's a tremendous amount of consistency and unity amongst the allies and also amongst kind of the broader EU-NATO community to keep supporting Ukraine. And I think the Russians are hoping that as the cold weather continues in Europe, as people gear up for elections, this might change. But as you say, elections to date do not seem to suggest that.
1: So that brings us to the Biden-Macron meeting this week in Washington. So again, statements of unity from the French and American presidents. And as we heard up top, Biden also said in their joint press conference that he was willing to talk to Putin about ending the Ukraine war, but only if the Russian president showed an interest in doing so, which so far he hasn't. Now, about uh, three weeks ago, US Joint Chiefs of Staff Michael Milley suggested that now was the time Ukraine should seek negotiations, solidify its recent gains as winter set in. The White House walked those comments back pretty quickly, but they do show that at least some people at senior levels in Western capitals are inclined to seek some sort of settlement sooner rather than later, maybe push Ukraine into something similar to the Minsk agreements, which is signed with Russia in what 2014, 2015, that left parts of Donbass in the hands of Russian-backed separatists. What do you make of that? I mean, one thing is keeping the door open to negotiations, which President Biden's comments seem to be doing, but another is pushing Ukraine toward a settlement now. I mean, is the latter even feasible? I mean, even were Western capitals to say, you know, okay, enough is enough, and to try and move in that direction?
0: So you need the Russians on board for the negotiation. Telling the Ukrainians to negotiate is great, except that they need a negotiating partner. And Moscow is actually probably more interested in the U.S. as a negotiating partner. And in that sense, Biden's statement is important and it is valuable because the United States will be a negotiating partner, as will France and other European powers, because the war is bigger than just Ukraine and the peace will have to be bigger than just Ukraine. But right now we have a Russian narrative that it's the Ukrainians who aren't negotiating and perhaps they don't say this outright, but implying that what the West ought to do is push the Ukrainians into negotiations. However, what the Russians are asking of the Ukrainians in any given negotiation is still Ukraine's capitulation, right? So they say the Ukrainians need to negotiate on the basis of what they call the geopolitical realities. Um, perhaps the easy way to understand this is that the quote-unquote geopolitical realities are what Russia wants. However, there are also the battlefield realities, which are what Russia is getting and not exactly
1: what it wants. In essence, then, what it means by the geopolitical reality presumably, is Ukraine's relationship with the West, with the EU and NATO, and the annexation that it declared of these big chunks of Ukraine.
0: And Ukraine's relationship with Russia. So this isn't very conducive to negotiations, and telling the Ukrainians, who have had the upper hand on the battlefield, that they should offer concessions to get the Russians to sit down with them. Well, that will make the Russians think that both Ukraine and its Western backers want peace more than they do. So they've got space to press for more. So, you know, it's just, it's not a great way to go into a negotiation because you're already giving things away. Now, of course, the Russians face the same problem, though they're on the back foot, but they don't want to go into a negotiation giving anything away in advance. But what they could do, of course, is go into a negotiation saying that their priority is to guarantee the safety and the security of Russian speakers in Ukraine, saying that they want to make sure that the fighting ends. There are all sorts of things you can say that aren't giving something away, but that aren't insisting on your adversary's total capitulation that could signal some willingness for talks. And then what happens behind closed doors is what happens behind closed doors. But that's not what we're seeing from Moscow. So it's Russia's narrative that the Ukrainians are refusing to negotiate. But what they're really saying is the Ukrainians are refusing to concede and telling the Ukrainians, if the Russians understand a push on the Ukrainians to negotiate as a push on the Ukrainians to concede, that's not going to lead to a more secure Europe, right? That's going to lead to a Russia walking away from all of this with ba- failure on the battlefield, success of the negotiating table, and a blueprint for how you get things from the West in the future.
1: And if Russia, you know, even if Russia came signaling that it might be open to some sort of compromise, even if that happened, and even if that meant that Western capitals were more inclined to encourage Ukraine to come to the table. I mean, presumably, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, I mean, on the one hand, presumably, he's constrained by his own politics. There would be an enormous resistance among Ukrainians to anything like the, the sort of deal we're talking about. On the other hand, Ukraine is completely dependent on Western weapons. And presumably, the West has leverage over what Ukraine can do.
0: Right, it has leverage over the government. But do you use your leverage to force a government into steps that will lead to its downfall and lead to unrest in the country. The majority of Ukrainians, when polled, the vast majority think they should keep fighting. Um, a pretty substantial majority thinks that Ukraine should retake all of the territory that is legally Ukraine, so including Crimea. You know, there's been some interesting polling that suggests that at least some Ukrainians are more willing to compromise if it's Volodymyr Zelensky's idea than if it's a Western idea. So if he's seen as giving into Western pressure as opposed to making deals on his own, it could actually hurt him. But opinion polls can only get you so far. What we do know is in the lead up to the Russian invasion during the eight years of war before that, there was a very strong anti-compromise, anti-Minsk implementation, according to the terms as defined by Russia, um, school of thought in Ukraine. And whether that was or was not representative of the majority of Ukrainians, it was definitely capable of getting people into the streets and putting pressure on first the Poroshenko government and later the Zelensky government.
1: And Olya, just to clarify, these were groups, politicians, that opposed pretty much any compromise from Kiev in terms of implementing some of what had been agreed as part of the Minsk agreements, which, to be fair, many Ukrainians chafed at, right? I mean, have felt Ukraine had been coerced into signing those agreements.
0: Right. So you've got to figure that that party, that lobby is that much bigger, that much more representative of the Ukrainian public. Um Cutting a deal when Ukraine looks like it's winning, when Ukraine looks like it has a chance, um, whether it's because of Western pressure or something else, it's going to be read as treason by a large number of Ukrainians.
1: And in any case, thus far, despite Milly's comments, there doesn't seem to be appetite in Western capitals to push Ukraine in that direction for all the reasons you say. But Olya, what do you think Western capitals are hoping for? that Ukraine will push back Russia a bit further, then press for a settlement? Or is it more wait and see because Ukraine, as you say, has the battlefield advantage and because the alternatives are worse?
0: I think it's wait and see because the alternatives are worse. It's get what you can and make sure that the Russians don't walk away from this feeling victorious and feeling that they now have, uh, they now, they now know how to get what they want from the West walk away from this with as much constraint on Russian military power as possible. So I think it's wait and see and get what you can get out of this. And that's both in terms of Ukraine's sovereignty. I think openly, nobody is going to give up anything because this too is part of the negotiation. Quietly, it depends on what happens. And we know from the negotiations between the Russians and Ukrainians that broke down in the spring, that there was some willingness not to give up Crimea, but to kick the Crimea question down the road a bit, you know, kind of commit to leaving it aside for a number of years. So I think people are probably reasonably comfortable pointing to that and saying something like this might still be possible, even if there are no negotiations currently. But the idea of Ukraine giving up stuff when it is still winning? You know, if you're in Kiev, if you're in Warsaw, and yes, if you're in Brussels or Berlin or Washington, why? Why would the country that is successful be the one to offer concessions?
1: So, Olya, you know that I agree with that. But just to play devil's advocate, you'd offer concessions because of the enormous global repercussions of the war, because the cost of energy spikes in global food prices, the damage it's wreaking on European economies, on the global economy, which may endure for many, many years, and because of the risk that it might turn nuclear.
0: So if the Russians walk away from this feeling that they have succeeded, and especially feeling that they were able to overcome their military weakness with stronger resolve because of the energy prices and the economies and all of the rest of it, then the next crisis, and there will be a next crisis, whether it's over Ukraine or over Moldova or over Georgia, is going to be that much more dangerous because Russia is going to be emboldened. Russia is going to have a plan for what to do. And Western countries are going to be self-flagellating for having gotten this wrong. And they too will be telling each other and that we got it wrong because we didn't stay the course. We got this wrong because we weren't strong enough. We need to be willing to do more this time. And then your escalation risks go up.
1: And in last time we were on earlier, we talked a little bit about the, the sort of discussions in Moscow and particularly the criticism that the Kremlin was facing from hardliners like Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, like Ramzan Kadyrov, the Chechen leader. The criticism that particularly the Russian defence ministry was facing for its conduct of the war, that also seems to have died down a little bit over the past weeks. Is that right? I mean, it, presumably the fact that Russia has just abandoned Kherson Uh, that it's just had to mobilize some 300,000 people, that maybe the same number have fled Russia's borders to avoid being mobilized? I mean, all this can't be lost on Russians.
0: Oh, I think more people have fled than were mobilized. I think in Russia, people are thinking about what happens next and how to avoid any new mobilizations. I'm told that organizations, universities, firms are uh, looking for ways to protect their people. And trying to take steps to do that. The public criticism of the war from the right, let's call it from the people who think that the problem is that Russia isn't fighting hard enough, isn't being forceful enough, isn't being brutal enough. I mean, this is the Prigozhin Kadyrov view as well as having allowed a certain amount of rot to seep in that permitted the initial failures. Um, I think that's still there in the conversations that these people are having on social media, We have not heard big public pronouncements from Kadyrov or Prigozhin in a while, but you know, they can always come back. I think that conversation is still going on. I think what's interesting is that you also have another conversation. You have the wives and mothers of soldiers, the family members of soldiers that have organized. They demanded an audience with Putin. Putin met with a group of women who were identified as wives and mothers of soldiers. I'm sure they were, but they were also pretty much all either United Russia Party or Russian government officials at the local level. So he met with a hand-selected group of women, and even there, it was only his comments that were publicly available, the conversation itself was kept quiet. So you do also have people who would like to see the war stop. So the the wives and mothers groups that were not able to meet with Putin, many of them are calling for an end to the war. A lot of the family organizations aren't doing that. They're simply saying, you're sending our sons and our husbands and our fathers to war uh, inadequately equipped you know, you're sending them to their deaths, which is a different argument, but it's one that's going to have resonance with an even broader audience. So that is also going on. Protesters are still getting arrested when they protest. This isn't a war that's likely to be ended by mass protests in Russia, but you do still have people who are speaking out and we're still hearing that too.
1: But nothing for now that looks likely to threaten the Kremlin's grip on power.
0: No, though it's notable that, you know, even with the hand-selected wives and mothers, it was a closed meeting.
1: So the one other thing that I wanted to ask you about, earlier was a speech this week by European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, in which she talks about establishing a special court, so not the International Criminal Court, the ICC, another court to look at war crimes in Ukraine. She also talks about the imperative of russia paying reparations use the figure i think of 600 billion dollars of damage to ukraine at the same time the us the european union have frozen i think about 300 billion of russian central bank foreign currency reserves frozen the assets of i think about 90 blacklisted russians so what do you make of all that prospects for sort of russia being held accountable individuals being held accountable for what they've done
0: so I think there are two factors when it comes to reparations. One is that it's going to be expensive to rebuild Ukraine and somebody's got to pay for it. Uh, shouldn't it be Russia? Now, of course, if Russia is tremendously weakened in the course of the war, it's not entirely clear with what money Russia is supposed to do that exactly. But, you know, somebody has to pay for it. So if The money's there. Why can't we use it? There's also a visceral um, desire to punish, to have the people that are responsible pay. And that applies both to reparations payments um, and to war crimes tribunals, that you want to see the truth be made public. You want to see the people who did harm, who are responsible for wrongdoing pay.
1: You want justice
0: you want justice. So you've got all of these things operating together. Now, of course, the problem is that when wars end, they rarely end in a perfect system of justice. Um, If a party is fully defeated, then those who defeated them uh, can impose on them all sorts of things, which can include reparations, which can include war crimes tribunals. But short of that, Negotiated settlements of various sorts, that's not what you get. More criminals walk free. So what what do you do with that reality? That you'll get these large-scale cases and these large-scale reparations in the event of a total victory? You probably won't in anything short of that. So what do you do in the meantime? So you've got these schemes that the European Commission is proposing, where they'll take the frozen assets, and they'll invest them, and they'll use the proceeds for the investment to help support Ukraine. The idea being, of course, that they can't take the money itself and use it, because that would be theft. Even the Russian Central Bank, even the blacklisted rich Russians have legal rights. So you can't just take their money. But the idea is what they can do is they can take their money and um, make more money of it and thus support Ukraine. I'm not a lawyer, um, so I can't tell you what the legality of that is. But it's one approach, I suppose. You also have to ensure that the investments actually um, are profitable, right? What happens if uh, they, they, in fact, lose money? So you get ideas like this on how to work around it. When it comes to the idea of new courts... Again, are you going to try these people in absentia? Kind of what's unclear. I do think there's a lot of value to doing the investigations, to putting together the cases, to having as much information as possible so that in the future, um, whatever kind of justice can be pursued is pursued. You know, you're not going to get much of anything if it's all hearsay and rumors. If you do have documentation, then, under a much broader range of scenarios, you'll be able to get some kind of resolution. But Crisis Group has said in the past that talking about putting Russian leaders on trial at The Hague is probably not helpful if what you want is a negotiated end to this war.
1: So, Olya, let me ask you one last one. So, the picture you've painted is obviously bleak. I mean, it's been a horrible nine, almost 10 months approaching a year. As you say, no obvious and in sight and although the war has, as we talked about, bucked predictions and could continue to do so, but it looks as though it could easily drag on for a long time. It continued enormous suffering for Ukraine, plus of course the ramifications for Europe and for the world, the hikes in food, fuel prices, the friction it stirred up elsewhere. Yet we could arguably be in a worse place, right? I mean if Russia had prevailed ousted the government in Kiev, conquered, subjugated its smaller neighbor through violence, nuclear menacing. For all the horror of the war, the alternative was worse.
0: If Russia had prevailed, Europe would be settling into armed camps. There would be massive military buildups on the part of uh, European countries, uh, mainly through NATO. And Russia would be doing the same, uh, probably also on Ukrainian territory. There would be recriminations galore amongst the Western countries for having let this happen. And when Russia tried again, which it would inevitably do, either with what had been left of Ukraine or in Moldova or in Georgia or somewhere else, there would be the call for doing more this time. So we'd have a different high risk of escalation crisis. We'd have kicked it down the road a little bit, uh, but it would be, it would come with a higher risk of escalation built in. So that's what I think, you know, that's my counterfactual what would have happened if Russia had won. Um, also keep in mind that the Western aid started coming after the Ukrainians had already successfully slowed the Russians down. So, With no Western aid, yes, the Russians would have won, but it would have been really ugly. And a lot of Ukrainians would have died and a lot of Russians would have died. So it's, you know, it's a fairly unappealing picture of what would have happened if, you know, the counterfactual I run is that the the West doesn't supply Ukraine with assistance, right? So the Russians eventually win, but it hurts more than they expected. They have a nasty occupation of Ukraine, and we have a tremendously insecure Europe. Probably also all sorts of gaps on grain getting out of Ukraine under those conditions, massive sanctions on Russia under those conditions, the energy markets still in havoc, all of that you still have. So, yes, I would say kind of on a very cold-hearted assessment of just, you know, who's alive, who's dead, what are your odds for future lives and deaths, and what are your odds for future economies this was the right
1: thing to do. Olya, well, yeah, thanks so much for coming on again.
0: Absolutely. Anytime.
1: Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Ukraine, on everything else we cover on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at crisisgroup. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub. And thanks, of course, to all of you, to all our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcasts at crisisgroup.org or write to me directly at www.crisisgroup.org. If you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, if you like the show, please do leave a positive rating or review. And I very much hope you'll join us again next week.